0: Welcome to Simon SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In Simon SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And today we're really delighted to be joined by one of the experts on foreign policy and national security in the U.S. Congress, Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, who's chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman was born in the Boston area, moved with his family to Arizona and then in Northern California, attended Stanford as an undergrad, Harvard Law School, moved back to California, uh, worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office for a time, then he was elected to the State Senate in California, served there for a term, became the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then in 2000 was elected to the U.S. House, has spent a lot of his time on the Intelligence Committee, became its chairman in 2019, and also about a year ago wrote a really tremendous memoir called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. A really powerful and insightful memoir that we will discuss among other things. So Chairman Schiff, good afternoon.
1: It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on, John.
0: Great. Well, Chairman, in your your book, you talk about your district, the 28th district, and I think I would posit it has to be one of the most interesting districts in the country. Um, Some of its institutions include um, Paramount Pictures, Disney, Warner Brothers, DreamWorks, Griffith Observatory, and the Jet Propulsion Lab, and I want to read one sentence and then have you tell us a little bit more about the district. You said, "Um, I used to brag about how, as a state senator, I could work on anything under the sun. But in Congress, now representing the Jet Propulsion Lab, with rovers on Mars and probes sent out into deep space, I could literally work on issues well beyond the sun. This was an, an enticement and an exhilaration, but also a trap. If you try to do too much or spread yourself too thin, you could end up accomplishing nothing, accomplishing nothing, no matter how long you're privileged to serve in Congress. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your district beyond what I mentioned, and then also how that has shaped your, uh, your service in Congress.
1: Um, well, you know, every member of Congress uh, thinks they have the best uh, district in the country, but only one of them is right. And that happens to be me. Uh, I have a wonderfully interesting, diverse district, uh, diverse in every way, ethnically, demographically, uh, and in terms of institutions. Uh, so um, yes, Hollywood is the predominant industry, which certainly makes it interesting, uh, but uh, we also have you know, premier engineering institutions, uh, and I think chief among them, uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, which I just love. Uh, the work that they do is, I think, endlessly fascinating. Uh, And I just love interacting with the brilliant people who work at the lab and discussing what they're discovering uh, about the world around us. Um, But I I mentioned uh, that uh, quote uh, in the book uh, because it really is a trap when you get to Congress. If you're interested in policy and issues, uh, you can easily be lulled into wanting to try to do too many things. It's a big place. And one of the uh, realizations I had after being here for about a year was that unless you decided, okay, here's an area where I really feel I can add value and you tried to develop an expertise in that area, uh, you could end up not making much of an impact uh, for your constituents or uh, in terms of the institution. And I chose to focus on national security, which many in my party, it wasn't their top focus. Uh, They were interested and concerned about it, but other issues had driven them to Congress. Uh, And I thought here was a role that I could play where I could add value uh, in in the House. And that's what uh, helped me gravitate to that area.
0: And you co-founded a the Democratic study group on national security, which was important. But in your book, you also talk about one of these sort of fortuitous moments in life where you are actually in a ceremonial room off the House chamber. You bumped into Speaker Pelosi. She said, oh, I've been looking for you. You said, oh, my gosh, you know, what did I do wrong? and she wanted you to serve on a special panel looking at the f uh, the CIA's uh interrogation types you served on that panel which led to interest in and an invitation to serve on the House Intelligence Committee so it's interesting how a, a sort of fortuitous exchange and and one assignment led to another assignment which really profoundly shaped your career
1: oh it's so true and you know it's, it's uh, i think a lot like life in general where uh, these happenstance things end up having huge consequences on your direction, your life, your career. Uh, In this case, uh, the speaker wanting as the intelligence panel at that time is called the Select Intelligence Oversight Panel, uh, which was a post 9-11 commission recommendation, or at least the outcome of the 9-11 committee recommendations about uh, how do we solve the stove piping within within the intelligence community, uh, which uh, led us not to see all the threats prior to 9-11. Um, there was a need to investigate the CIA's destruction of their interrogation tapes, essentially the torture tapes. Uh, And she wanted someone with investigative experience to serve on that panel. Uh, And I remember she stopped me and said, have you ever thought about this? And, you know, would you think about this? You know, you don't have to answer right now, but let me know if you'd be interested in serving. And my response to her was, I've just thought about it and the answer is yes. Uh, so I didn't need much time to, to go home and, and study the question. And uh, you know, in that inter- interaction, like in so many other, frankly, key points in my career, Speaker Pelosi was a huge influence. Uh, she was one of the people years before that who really encouraged me to run for Congress. Uh, and so uh, I owe a lot to her um, mentorship over the years.
0: Well, the House Intelligence Committee oversees a sprawling intelligence apparatus. I think there's something like 18 agencies, nine of which are located in the Defense Department, includes agencies that we are familiar with and probably many that we are not. Um, I was looking at the Congressional Research Service, they said the annual budget for the intelligence community is about $85 billion. Um, so tell us mechanically just I mean a little bit about your committee how it works and how you oversee these these entities that have sort of go out of their way not to be uh, learned very much about
1: yeah it's a great question uh, you know we meet in what we call affectionately the bunker uh, it's a classified space uh, called a skiff uh, a sensitized sensitive compartmentalized information facility um, below the capitol and uh, basically, we have closed hearings with the intelligence community. Uh, we had one today, for example, on the issue of transnational uh, ex- you know, extremist uh, threats. Uh, so That is the, the international dimension of white nationalism and that uh, threat to, of domestic terror as well as international component to that. Um, other days, you know, yesterday we had a hearing on Ukraine, as you might imagine. Um, but in addition to doing oversight and developing policy that way, we set the budget for these agencies. Uh, we make sure that they operate uh, within the law, that they protect people's privacy. Uh, so we oversee the NSA, for example, that does electronic surveillance, the CIA, which does both electronic and human intelligence, as well as other agencies that do imagery intelligence uh, and most of that work, work product is rolled into an annual intelligence authorization bill. Um, it's a, it historically has been a fairly nonpartisan committee. Uh, happily, I can tell you again today, it's becoming again a nonpartisan committee. Uh, during the Trump years, when Trump badly politicized the intelligence agencies, uh, and of course we had to investigate uh, a lot of the former president's misconduct, uh, it was a very different environment on the committee. Uh, but happily, uh, getting back to the sense of comedy that we've enjoyed historically,
0: I've been reading a book by Amy Ziegert, who is a uh, intelligence expert at Stanford and at the Hoover Institute, and and she she made this an interesting point. She just said that you know whereas in you know many members of Congress have kind of you know are not that familiar with the military, you know don't have have not served in the military. This is particularly true with intelligence. And she said in 2020, just 18. Of the 535 members in Congress had worked for an intelligence agency. But, and she also goes further to talk about how so much of what p- the public knows, and even frankly, lawmakers, is based on what she calls spytainment, which is, you know, these sort of thrillers that we see on TV and Netflix. And she said, of course they're fun, but she said they, they have, a, a, that there's a distorting element in which the public sees these agencies. Is more powerful, more capable, capable uh, and maybe even more unmonitored and untethered than they really are. Could you talk about that? Yeah. In fact, I just got together
1: with Amy a couple of months ago uh, to discuss some of the issues she writes about. Um, you know, I think that, well, first of all, the number of people within the intelligence community who now serve in Congress is probably a high watermark. Uh, so it, it was a lot less in, in the past. Um, I think that part of the reason why those numbers have gone up is that uh, in the last uh, you know couple decades, concerns over our national security um, and our democracy have led a lot of patriotic people within the IC to run for Congress. But uh, she's right. There's a, a lot of kind of public misconception about the intelligence community uh, to the point where it develops a lot of paranoia that the U.S. intelligence agencies are listening in on everybody's conversations, which is not true. Um, But you know who else seems to be, you know, I think uh, misled, although I I don't think by the movies, uh, is Vladimir Putin. Uh, Putin, I I think, blames the intelligence community uh, for the color revolutions that have gone on around the world. Uh, In in his view, he sees the hidden hand of the CIA behind the Arab Spring, behind the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, the Revolution of Dignity, behind the Green Revolution in Lebanon, Uh, you know, pretty much anywhere you look, he sees uh, the the work of the U.S. intelligence community. I feel like telling the intelligence community, uh, congratulations, you're much more omnipotent than I would have imagined. Um, The reality is is much more modest than that, Uh, and they have an important role to play Uh, I think actually you can see some of the best use of intelligence in the run-up to the war in Ukraine, uh, where their assessments were spot on about what Russia was planning. uh, And the fact that they were so spot on and that the president was able to disclose that intelligence in advance of the war, I think stripped bare the nakedness of Putin's aggression uh, and helped us build support for those really powerful sanctions uh, in record speed. So the, the intelligence agencies can play a key role in our national defense. Uh, you know, we do need to keep scrutinizing them to make sure that they operate as they're supposed to, uh, to keep us safe, but also to keep us uh, um, private, keep our private lives private. And and that's really the, the goal of our committee.
0: Well, you mentioned you have a lot of uh, closed hearings, but you had really a remarkable open hearing in early March Uh, The annual worldwide threats hearing and it you know it's it's chilling hearing every year to see just the 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 really remarkable threats that are building across the world this year's. uh, uh, Hearing focused a lot on Ukraine, and I was particularly struck by an exchange you had with the CIA director, you know bill burns who towards the end, you said, well, so we're talking about Russia and Ukraine, you say, how is this going to end and burns who's always well prepared said that's the core question. We really don't know. Putin does not seem to have a sustainable political endgame, but his history is doubling down. Pull back and tell us how do you think, give us an assessment of where you think things are now with Ukraine um, and and Russia.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you uh, that question, um, how is this supposed to end? (laughs) I've been asking, in one form or another at just about every briefing we've had uh, since prior to the war. And the answer is in private, merely the answer he gave us in public, which is no one, no one really knows how this is supposed to end. And I think in part it's because um, Putin's plans were built on a, a tragic miscalculation that if not greeted as liberators, Ukrainians would not resist um, and certainly wouldn't resist with the kind of ferocity we have seen them resist. Uh, And I think Putin also overestimated the competence of his own military, underestimated the ability of NATO and the United States and our allies to get our act together in terms of sanctions, underestimated the the, uh, weapons that we would be willing to provide to Ukraine. And so because the war was built on such profound miscalculations um, and the CIA is right that he would double down in the face of obstacles has meant that he has doubled down, um, and that double down, doubling down has taken the form of more and more indiscriminate bombing. Uh, now, we've seen just within the last few days, the Russian military announced that it is changing its focus uh, to put more of an emphasis on eastern Ukraine, on shoring up uh, the Russian presence in the Donbass, uh, and is even pulling back forces around Kyiv. This is not because that was the Russian game plan all along, as they are intimating, uh, but rather because they can't sustain what they're doing um, in in the face of this vigorous Ukrainian opposition. Uh, Ukrainians were pushing them back, and so their going back is not a virtue on their part; it's a necessity. Um, nevertheless, um, Putin has staked so much on this; it's still difficult to see how he backs down. Um, And I I think what we need to do is more of what we've been doing, which is continue to uh, supply uh, uh, new uh, and additional capabilities, military capabilities to Ukraine, um, support them economically and with humanitarian assistance uh, until um, the Russian people themselves begin to turn on this war. And Putin begins to fear that if he persists, It could mean the end of his regime. Uh, It's hard for me to see him uh, backing down short of that.
0: I saw Leon Panetta on TV recently uh, saying that his view was that the longer this conflict goes on, the more likely it is that Russia will lose. I, I think what he meant by lose was withdraw from from most of Ukraine. Is that the? I mean, but at the same time, we're seeing Putin just hammering these cities and these innocent civilians. I mean, is that sort of the dynamic that the longer this plays out, the more likely that Putin will eventually have to retreat? I think
1: that's true. Um, uh, Part of Putin's calculation is this could be done swiftly. It could be done so swiftly, the US wouldn't be able to put into effect with its allies punishing sanctions, um, or that they could find end runs around them for as long as they need, because it wouldn't be that long. I think this was the calculus of some of the other countries, too, like China. I think President Xi expected this to be over quick uh, and and has to be concerned with uh, being stained by what Putin is doing if China uh, helps Russia evade sanctions or provides them with military support. Uh, So I think that uh, the longer this goes on, the more unsustainable it is for Russia the more they're forced to trim their hopes and expectations in Ukraine. The the terrible tragedy of that, of course, is the longer this goes on, the more Ukrainians are dying. And so uh, it's hard to, on the one hand, hope that this goes on because it means Russia's failing when it going on means more and more loss in Ukrainian
0: life. Your Intelligence Committee sent a letter to the intelligence community, I think it was last week, it was a bipartisan letter, and it called on the intelligence community to continue to work hard to help the Ukrainian, uh, you know, giving information as best they can, but also to do some very careful investigation about potential war crimes. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that letter and what, what, what issues you're trying to get the intelligence community to focus on.
1: Well, I'm really proud of the role that the intelligence community has played uh, in helping Ukraine and helping the United States and our allies, not just by previewing what Putin's intentions were, but also uh, by previewing that uh, when the Russians talk about Ukraine and chemical and biological weapons, when the Russians push out propaganda about a Ukrainian weapons program, what it really means is the Russians are contemplating using those weapons themselves and they're trying to establish a pretext. Calling them out on it makes it more difficult for them to do it and more transparent if they do it. Uh, Similarly, calling out China and saying, we know Russia is appealing to you for weapons. uh, And if you provide them or help them evade sanctions, you will not do so anonymously. You will be exposed and you will carry the taint. Uh, I think that's very important. And one other area where I think the intel community can be helpful, and this is the subject of that letter, is by helping to document war crimes that Russia is committing in Ukraine Uh, so that uh, when this is all over, there is a reckoning, uh, whether it's in an international tribunal or in some other form, uh, so that those who have deliberately um, killed civilians in Ukraine are held to account.
0: Well, in your book, one of the characters is a gentleman that we first learned about most of us Americans in 2019, President Zelensky, and it was in a very different context. Uh, He was seeking uh, military aid from the United States. Congress had authorized that aid and President Trump was effectively blocking it um, until uh, uh, Zelensky went forward with some investigations of the Biden family, et cetera. Um, Zelensky, I mean, you write us in the book that, you know, initially he was uh, something of a, uh, you know, he was obviously had a background in entertainment. He, you know, initially was actually flattering President Trump, saying he actually had modeled his campaign after the Trumps. But Zelensky has grown into a major world figure. I mean, tell us about that transformation as you see it.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And and, uh, I'm glad that the world gets to see this person, Zelensky who the president of the United States, Donald Trump was trying to shake down. Um, And what people need to know is at the time that Donald Trump withheld $400 million worth of military aid for Ukraine, uh, including these Javelin anti-tank missiles, um, Ukraine was even then in a shooting war with Russia. Um, This massive invasion started a few months ago, but the the, the long simmering war started years ago. Uh, And so Ukrainians then, were fighting and dying every week, uh, so it wasn't like they didn't need it. Then they needed those weapons, uh, and Donald Trump was secretly withholding them, trying to extort this new president, this comedian turned president, uh, into helping him cheat in the election by smearing Joe Biden. Uh, and imagine, you know, Zelensky at that point had been only in office for a matter of months, and his first interaction with the United States is having the president of the United States trying to shake him down. Uh, you can just imagine um, whether he was concluding, so this, is this what the United States is all about? Uh, is this how world affairs really works? Um, you know, it is how Putin works, but it, it, it was not how the United States worked. And it, it really is just so uh, galling that that was his first impression of the president of the United States. More than that though, and this is the tie to the present, <clears throat> What Donald Trump did told Vladimir Putin that we didn't care about Ukraine. Uh, We didn't care about its people, its democratic aspirations, none of that. Um, That Ukraine we consider basically just a political plaything to be used and leveraged uh, in a campaign. Um, And that, I think, was part of the encouragement for what Putin is doing now. I think Putin understood that as long as Trump was the leader of the Republican Party, which he is to this day, that if he were to invade Ukraine, he could count on Donald Trump to continue to praise him and to use the occasion to attack Biden, which of course is exactly what Donald Trump did. Uh, now, I do think that that Putin miscalculated the degree to which Democrats and Republicans in Congress would unite around these punishing sanctions and weapons for Ukraine. So that was a profound miscalculation. The rest of the GOP, uh, or much of it anyway, has not gone along with Trump's continuing uh, idolatry towards Vladimir Putin, um, but, uh, but that early chapter did have a significant impact on the present. Um, and, uh, and I'm sorry, you had a, another part of that question as well.
0: Well, just, no, I think you've, you've answered just sort of the way Zelensky has grown into a major figure oh. under, you know, obviously astonishing adversity, but, uh, you know, we've all seen the video of his, you know, his awkward appearance with Trump. And then to just see how he has been transformed is really quite startling.
1: Oh, it, it is incredible. And, and here again, um, was a mis- miscalculation by Putin who believed that Zelensky was weak and uh, never imagined that he would display the leadership and courage that he has. Uh, I think Putin expected he would be Ashraf Ghani, uh, the former Afghan president who fled uh, uh, and had Zelensky done that, had he left Kyiv and not shown that kind of courage to the Ukrainian people, not inspire them to fight, it could have been a very different story in Ukraine. Part of the Russian plan was to topple that government uh, and install a puppet regime. Uh, well, there's no chance of that happening now, and Zelensky deserves enormous credit.
0: Well, your book uh, chronicles in uh, riveting detail the, um, the impeachment of the first impeachment of President Trump, um, carefully uh, drawn the, the whole sequence of events But I wanna read a sentence or two from your your summation speech to the Senate in February of 2020. So it's, it's about nine months before the election. And you say, now you may be asking how much damage can President Trump really do in the next several months until the election? A lot, a lot of damage. Then you go on to say, what are the odds if left in office that he will continue to try to cheat? I will tell you 100%, not 5% not 10% or even 50%, but 100%. Given a little bit of time and perspective, how do you now see the the impeachment drama that you were such a central figure in?
1: Well, I I think it's so tragic that uh, um, seeing what he was made out of, um, uh, seeing that this was a person who couldn't tell the truth, doesn't know right from wrong, is fundamentally indecent and would be a danger. And yes, would continue trying to cheat that the Senate <clears throat> couldn't muster the courage to do the right thing, uh, knowing that he was guilty. Uh, and indeed, the Republican senators that voted to acquit, so many of them admitted that he was guilty um, and yet wouldn't convict. And you know, the, the, the prediction I made in that trial that if he was left in office, they found him guilty but didn't remove him, that this is what we could expect. It, it wasn't like I required a crystal ball for that. It didn't require any great clairvoyance. Uh, it just required seeing who he was. Um, it was the day after Bob Mueller testified, the day after Donald Trump thought he had escaped accountability for his Russian misconduct, for inviting Russia to help in the 2016 election, for making use of Russian help and then lying about it and covering it up, Uh, Remember, Trump's own campaign manager was secretly meeting with Russian intelligence, uh, giving them polling data while they were running a social media campaign to elect Donald Trump uh, and then covering up and lying about it. Uh, It was the day after Mueller testified and Donald Trump believed he had been uh, able to escape the jailer that he was on the phone with Zelensky trying to extort a different country into helping him. Uh, and, And so the idea that if he was not held accountable for the Ukraine misconduct, that it wouldn't lead to even worse misconduct uh, was you know, contradicted to everything we'd seen of him. And, and so I, I look back on that as a moment in time when, had the Senate lived up to its oath of office, we might have avoided a bloody insurrection that was headed our
0: way. Well, your book has a, an utterly riveting account of the day the, of January 6 and what it was like to be at ground zero as as the uh, the insurrection unfolded. Um, and and you, you describe it vividly, but then you write, um, looking back on these events, I am struck not only by the inevitability of the violent insurrection, but how peril- perilously close Trump came to overthrowing the American government. Excuse me, and remaining in office without the benefit of being elected. We came so close to losing our democracy. So very, very close. Um, Talk about that.
1: Um, There were multiple lines of effort to overturn the election. Um, January 6th was just the violent culmination of those efforts. So those efforts included trying to suborn the Justice Department to decapitate its leadership Uh, and install someone who would uh, promulgate false claims of massive fraud, who would urge the states not to send slates of electors. Uh, It involved uh, 60 bogus lawsuits all over the country. It involved the creation of fake certificates of electors. Uh, It involved the former president on the phone with the secretary of state in Georgia, as well as other elected officials around the country. In the case of Georgia, trying to get that elected official to fine 11,780 votes that didn't exist. Uh, And it involved uh, trying to pressure the Vice President of the United States to ignore his constitutional duty uh, and essentially declare Trump the winner. Uh, It also involved uh, an effort that ran straight to the House of Representatives uh, to get Republican House members to vote to overturn the election. And this uh, is what I'm alluding to, which is, all of those efforts came perilously close to success. They all failed, but they all came so close. Uh, and, and the tragedy of the, the time between then and now, between January 6th and now, is that even after the Republican Party saw uh, the terrible end to which Trump and Trumpism had brought us to the point of a violent attack on our capital, uh, even then they refused to repudiate him Um, Even now, they're using that big lie about fraud in the last election to usher in a whole new generation of Jim Crow laws uh, and to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisans. The lesson they seem to seem to have learned from that failed insurrection is that next time, if they couldn't have a Secretary of State in Georgia, for example, who would find those thousands of votes that didn't exist, they want to make sure they have someone in that position next time who will. Uh, And and this is how democracies come to an end. It's not always by violent means, more often it's by using the instruments of democracy to tear down democracy itself. Uh, And so I I wrote this book as a uh, a sounding of the alarm, Um, but also I wrote this because while there had been a lot written about what happened in the White House uh, during the Trump years, there hadn't been much written about what happened in Congress. And but for so many of my colleagues uh, enabling the former president, he could not have done any of these things. Uh, the historian Robert Carroll once wrote that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for a best, but it says a lot about who we are. And power revealed a lot about people I served with who turned out not to believe in any of the things they said they believed in so much as their own power or ambition.
0: Well, you, you, in the book, you offer a, a really challenging uh, a challenge to all of us. You say that we are in trouble is undeniable. That this trouble is of our own making, even if it is being stoked by our adversaries overseas, is also undeniable, undeniable. Democracy is hard. Civilization is not inevitable. Our present circumstances are desperate, but we do not have the luxury of despair. American history gives us good reason to be hopeful for demonstrates an almost endless capacity for renewal. So I think for a lot of people, we're asking, you know, so what have we what have we as a country done since January 6, to fortify our democracy? What can average citizens do to fortify our democracy? What can places like the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute do, do to fortify our democracy? What can we do to to avert this Uh, potential catastrophe that maybe still is lurking off in the distance.
1: Well, you know, legislatively, uh, one of the uh, packages of bills that I introduced is called the Protecting Our Democracy Act. Uh, It is um, what I began talking to the speaker about a couple of years ago, our own set of post-Watergate reforms uh, designed to address all of the abuses of power we witnessed over the last several years. Uh, So it includes things like expediting enforcement of congressional subpoenas Uh, It uh, involves uh, stiffening penalties under the Hatch Act uh, so that the president can't use the federal workforce or the White House lawn for political conventions and as an arm of their campaign. Uh, It it involves uh, doing away with the the ability to evade Senate confirmation of top level appointments through multiple temporary appointments and a whole host of other reforms. Uh, That package passed in the House We still need to get it passed in the Senate Uh, and that package along with the voting rights legislation, HR1, I think are among the most important legislative reforms, but at at a a more grassroots level, I think the point of the spear right now, uh, that spear pointed at the heart of our democracy, are these voter disenfranchisement efforts, Uh, these efforts to um, run out of town sometimes with death threats, local Nonpartisan elections officials. They need our protection, they need our encouragement, they need our support, uh, and we need to fight these efforts to turn people away from the polls and particularly uh, and insidiously people of color are being turned away deliberately. Um, and, and so where new obstacles have been enacted at the state level uh, to make it harder for people to vote We have to arm those people with good information about how they can overcome those difficulties and make sure that their their vote is cast and that their vote is counted. Uh, I think those are among the most important things we can do. Um, But then I I also feel feel there really needs to be a national movement uh, in support of our democracy and a reawakening of the importance of democracy. As we watch those images from Ukraine, uh, you know, one stands out to me of this older Ukrainian man throwing himself in front of a Russian tank. Uh, and the tank stops and then it lurches forward again and stops again. And I just marvel at the courage of this man to do that, this Ukrainian man to throw himself in front of the tank. Uh, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, I ask myself, what are we willing to do here at home to defend our democracy? And the answer is so much easier by comparison. But nonetheless, vitally important because our democracy is also at risk, not from Russian tanks directly, but uh, from, from within, uh, which makes it uh, in, in a way every bit as insidious. Uh, and so I think we all have a role to play um, and each of us may be a, a bit of a different role, but uh, in pushing back against this, this flirtation with authoritarianism in, in one of America's two great parties.
0: We have a couple questions uh, emailed in. And the first one, Chairman Schiff, it comes from James and Will Matt, who wants to know about the relationship between the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee. What are the similarities? What are the differences? How do you work together um, in carrying out your responsibilities?
1: Uh, you know, it's a great question. We work together very closely. Um, the, the, that intelligence authorization bill that I mentioned uh, earlier. The, the product of both of our committees, uh, we produce it separately, but it's the product of years worth of work in each committee. Those bills are then reconciled with each other and, and hopefully successfully passed uh, on the House uh, or Senate floor, uh, both floors really. Um, that requires us to work together um, to essentially get to four corner agreement is what we call it, where the chair and and ranking member, Democrat and Republican in both houses needs to come to agreement on the same exact terms. And we've been able to do that. Um, So each committee has a slightly different personality. Uh, You know, over the Trump years, uh, it was much more internecine warfare within the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, The Senate Intelligence Committee maintained, I think, a little bit more decorum. Uh, At the same time, we were able to conduct important investigations that the Senate wasn't able to do. Um, And so I think we we each have a a slightly different role to play depending on the circumstances. But um, from an intel perspective, the most important role is getting those annual um, oversight bills done and funding bills done, and we work very closely on those.
0: John from Bloomington asks about your work on the January 6th committee, wants to know if there'll be public hearings this summer, if there'll be legislation coming from it and if there will be a final report, and if so, roughly when?
1: Um, Yes to all of those things. Uh, We expect very high profile, I would imagine, uh, likely primetime hearings uh, beginning in May, uh, and uh, and a whole series of them. Um, We will also uh, uh, be producing uh, one report or multiple reports. My guess is that we'll probably introduce a more general for the public consumption report sooner. It'll be after the conclusion of the hearings at some point. Um, and then perhaps a more detailed report with a classified annex thereafter. We're learning an awful lot. We've interviewed hundreds of people. We've obtained thousands and thousands of documents. We've been very successful in court. Uh, and you know, significantly, one of those court successes came out of California Recently, in which a federal judge uh, ordered the production of materials because finding that they were not privileged because they indicated that the former president and others may have engaged in a crime, uh, which is a pretty significant ruling by a federal judge. Uh, so um, we will be doing all the above and as expeditiously as possible.
0: You had, uh, you've mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, early um, a reference to Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, and in your book, you describe her in really, you know, very admiring terms as someone who's strategic and smart and savvy, and you even tell a wonderful story or an interesting story where uh, during the course of the first impeachment, there was some some disagreement about whether there'd be one lead manager or two, and she said, uh, her comment was, one good general is better than two great generals. And then she turned to you and said, not that you're not a great general. But talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi. I mean, her public image is somewhat oftentimes caricatured, but tell us about what it's like to work with Nancy Pelosi.
1: Well, you know, she's a remarkable figure. And I, I think when I first got to Congress, <clears throat> I used to lament. And by the way, this is a soft drink. It only looks like a beer. <laughs> I um, used to lament that I I wasn't here to serve with Tip O'Neill, the legendary Tip O'Neill. But then after getting to serve with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, I thought, you know, people who come after me are going to lament they didn't get a chance to work with the great Speaker Pelosi. Um, She is brilliant and indefatigable. Um, uh, To keep our very diverse caucus together requires a Herculean effort, which I'm not sure anyone could accomplish except her. She's been quite amazing that way. But what people may not know or have a sense of is she's also very funny. Uh, she has a great sense of humor. And uh, I, I recall also a couple of anecdotes in the book. Uh, one, uh, when she had asked me to be the lead manager and others were lobbying her because they wanted to be one of the managers on the team. And after one of our caucus meetings, we stayed after the whole 200 plus members left the room. So it's just the speaker and I and 220 empty seats. And she said, look at all those seats. Every single one of those members sitting there them has asked me to be a manager in the impeachment. And, uh, you know, she will make those observations from time to time. Um, I remember being uh, doing a press conference with her during the impeachment. And I was calling uh, and I write about this in the book. I was calling Mike, Mike Pompeo on the carpet because. Uh, he was withholding uh, State Department witnesses during the Ukraine investigation. Uh, this was before Marie Ivanovich basically uh, was the first through the breach and showed these other career civil servants they, could, they too could have the courage to do the right thing. But I was worried at that time that Pompeo might be successful in stonewalling us. Uh, and Pelosi and I had a press conference where I raised this point At the time, the president was meeting with the uh, president. Trump was meeting with the president, I think, of Norway and uh, apparently had the TV on and he was watching uh, this presser and he was just fuming uh, and he started to essentially live tweet. And he tweeted that uh, Adam Schiff couldn't hold Mike Pompeo's jockstrap. And I could I could only imagine the president what the president of Norway thought about this. And uh, after the presser, we go back into the little green room, the speaker, myself and a couple of our staff and one of the speaker's staff starts to read her these presidential tweets and reads that particular tweet. And the speaker looks at me and she says, you really are in
0: his head.
1: <laughs> she was all too right about that.
0: Chairman you write also your book wonderfully about your family. Your wife, Eve, um, who seems a remarkable person. You have a son and daughter. And your your dad seems to be just a wonderful uh, person, vibrant, alive, a very staunch defender of of his son. Um, had kind of a, a sharp encounter. I don't know if he was an assisted living place, but someone wanted to turn on Fox and he wanted to turn on MSNBC and they had a little bit of a verbal exchange. and. Uh, He was asked if he would, uh, you know, refrain from any kind of strong comments. And he said, can't give you any Ironclad guarantees. Tell us a little bit about your dad.
1: Well, my dad is 94 and uh, he's wonderful and uh, has taught me so much. Um, And he's an incredible character. And uh, he's gotten into, uh, he lives in Boca and uh, uh, he's gotten into more of his share of altercations over the work of his son. Uh, in this case, uh, I think what really perturbed him was an attack on his son by this person he was quarreling with at the club. But, uh, but you're right. He was hauled up before the board for using an obscenity uh, in reply to this guy and asked uh, if he would commit to not using that obscenity in the club again. They would let him off. And my dad said, well, I will do my very best, but I'm not sure I can give you an ironclad guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I enjoyed writing about so I, I, some of the scenes I couldn't write about with my, with my father I would have liked to, but I did get to include
0: several of them. Great. Well, final question. I know you're going to have to run off to a vote, but, but in your book, you, you say tantalizing, tantalizingly, I'm from Los Angeles, so of course I've written screenplays. Tell us about your screenplays that you've written. And also, maybe more seriously, if you have another book that you're, you, you're contemplating.
1: Uh, you know, over the years, beginning uh, before I was in the state legislature, I started to write screenplays. I've written three. Uh, I had an agent at William Morris at one point. And, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of funny when I was in the state Senate. Um, one of my colleagues was a senator named Steve Peace, who was a movie a filmmaker uh, prior to being in the state Senate. And he made a lot of these sort of low budget cult films like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes was one of his films. So I went up to Steve on the the state center floor one day, I was very excited because my agent had sent me something from Paramount that was just glowing about my screenplay. And I said, wow, isn't this great, Steve? And I'm getting this great feedback and that great feedback. And Steve looks at me with this just complete dismissive tone. He says, "Uh, Adam, there are two kinds of answers in Hollywood. There's yes, and there's here's the check. You're getting a lot of the former and none of the latter. (laughs) So he taught me something important about uh, Hollywood. Uh, But uh, in terms of the present, um, I I was really only able to write the book Midnight in Washington because of the pandemic. Um, The first several months, I had a lot of time at home, like so many Americans. Um, It was, I think, important for me to write, both as a matter of history and to sound the alarm. Um, It was hard to write. Uh, to to live through this again and um, I think what I would like to do next is write a work of fiction not a a screenplay I don't think but maybe a novel Um, I would it would be enjoyable uh, and a nice diversion Um, so I think my next writing project will probably be that if I should find the time
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We, we really appreciate it. And I would recommend to all of our viewers midnight in Washington It's really well written, very vivid, and raises some of the most profound questions about what we are facing today. And Mr. Chairman, if uh, when conditions allow if if your travel plans uh, take you uh, through Illinois, we'd love to bring you to the Paul Simon Institute and show you around and give you a sense of of some of the things that Senator Simon did in his retirement and the legacy we're trying to perpetuate.
1: I would love that. I'm a big fan uh, of the Senator and his legacy and, uh, and now of your institute. So thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.